This podcast is called Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest get some secrets off their chest. You should listen. It's the best. Hello and welcome to Obsessed with me, Joseph Scrimshaw. I'm sitting in my home with the other person who lives in my home and the other person who is on this podcast. It's Sarah Scrimshaw. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? <laughs> Good. We did our <laughs> weekly check-in. Did, did you believe us when we both said that we were doing good? Or did it sound like uh, we are doing good in the way that society says that as just an answer to one another? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it felt a little. Um, for my, I'll speak for myself. Felt a little bit like um, somebody asked a question, and this is a response I've learned. You yes. know, like when you're learning another language, you say "Como se va? Ça va bien?" Like that's just what you learn. They don't tell you how to say "I'm doing poorly." They tell you how to say "I'm doing well." Right. Toca la guitarra. Yeah. <laughs> Just a programmed response from mm-hmm. learning a language. Yeah. I felt bad. I had a call yesterday, a, a businessy Hollywood call with uh, two people. Mm-hmm. And the first, that's always hard when there are three people and, you know, one of them was kind of echoey. So it's kind of strange to hear anyway. Uh, and everybody kind of talks over each other sometimes. So, but the first person was like, so how's everybody doing? I was like, I'm good. How are you? And I realized it was just a, the normal response they were supposed to give. And the other two people were like, I, it's absurd to think anybody could be. <laughs> like, <laughs> they were being good and honest. And it was, yeah. a, it was a really nice, actually honest conversation about, you know, the general recognition that there's a lot of uh, trauma going on in the world and uh, personal effects that are going on for people. But I felt it was one of those moments where I am happy that I tried to be a positive person but realize that sometimes <laughs> there is a negativity to being positive in the wrong moment. Yeah. I have to say, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong. But I feel like this is the first time in a while that I have fallen into the road. Oh, I'm, I'm good. I feel like I'm like, ah. <laughs> so um, I, I guess put me in front of a microphone and I'll be like, I'm doing fine. Yeah. Well, I guess that's, uh, I think you suggested a good answer to the how are you question to just go, uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I will answer from now on. How are you? Uh. Me, me too. Same here. Uh, we are going to uh, keep playing with the general shape of Obsessed uh, as we continue to do the podcast together. Maybe one of these days I will reach out and start recording them uh, online, but that's not my favorite, as I've talked about before. So as you and I keep doing it together and keep doing it in very turbulent times, mm-hmm. uh, I want to play with the format a little bit, and I want to find the right balance. Uh, we started our episode last week. It was really ended up being really uh, cathartic and joyful to talk about Uncle Hugo's and Uncle Edgar's uh, beloved bookstore that was destroyed in Minneapolis, but we spent 17 minutes at the top of the podcast on caveats. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to uh, try to reduce that a little bit. Uh, So I think for for this week, I want to just acknowledge that for myself, uh, as a human and as a creator, I'm trying right now to find that balance between life must go on Mm-hmm. And also not letting, um, obviously, the pandemic is still going on, and there's a lot of reopening, there's a lot of wrestling with that. But this particular moment that we have been having of we are going to fully acknowledge the amount of police brutality, we are going to fully acknowledge the amount of racial injustice, I think, you know, I have been involved in, in is a person alive in waves of that before, and then it always just quiets down again. 
and I'm really conscious of how can I contribute to not letting it just quiet down again Mm -hmm. and finding that balance between I don't want to act by being silent and I also recognize that just for mental health for economy some amount of normal life needs to go on Mm -hmm. does that make sense yeah very well said I would I would say (laughs) (laughs) well I would say thank you for saying I said that well (laughs) sounded very British do you have any thoughts or feelings on that or do you just want to move on to our main topic I mean I'm honestly I feel like you you kind of covered a lot of how I feel and and for people who listened to last week's I feel like I said similar of it is I feel like it is finding that balance and I will echo that I feel that for myself and I also feel like it is um it's a, a place where I I don't want to fool myself or fool anybody else that this is what I think it's not a place where you Find a balance where I find a balance and then stay there. It's like, okay, this week, this is the balance. This week, this is the balance and allow it to be arranged. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, <laughs> I'm just going to hammer home and include the word nuance and uh, range and like every single <laughs> conversation from now on. But that is one of my current things that like things are nuanced. We need to have a, a variety of approaches and and less uh yeah you know stark contrasts i fully down. i fully support you being rigid about nuance that, that is your <laughs> your your only constant is that things are fluid right now uh-huh. i I, yeah. I joke a little bit but i do actually think that that's great because i i think for myself sometimes i'm like i want to find the solution mm-hmm. and i think just being responsive to the world outside of you every day is <laughs> probably a good thing. Uh, so we wanted to talk about something that was uh, definitely an obsession, mm-hmm. but also something that wasn't just like, la, 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 let's get on with life. Um, so we are going to talk about your actual longstanding obsession with history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for people who are not uh, haven't been listening to the podcast for a thousand years, uh, history is obviously something you and I both like. It's come mm-hmm. up. It comes up a lot. Uh, it's been on my mind because of uh, all of the how can history impact what is the big historical moments that we are clearly living in. Uh, but it's always been a big part of your life, just from uh, just interest in it, uh, degree, career, and the things you watch and read and everything, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> why are you laughing? Um, because it is funny to me, not, I, I don't know why it's funny, just how much it has permeated nearly every aspect of my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, from huge life choices to socks, right? You've got some history socks, probably. I'm sure I have socks that I like because of some historical reason. I don't think I have any socks that like say history on them. It's only because I have not been able to find them yet, but I'll be, I'll be looking for that. I look forward to that. Uh, What's the next uh, gift giving opportunity coming up? Halloween, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're getting some history socks for Halloween. Fantastic. (laughs) Uh, So what are your early memories of, liking or being aware of history Mm. um i always i don't have like a clear oh i was you know in second grade and loved blah 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 yeah i think you know as i was always a reader um and you know some of it probably came from from family um one of my grandmother's 
was, um, especially for her time period, older when she had my mother, (laughs) one of my grandmothers, my mother's mother, (laughs) uh, was in her 40s when she had my grandmother. So she was, I was in fact um, in second grade and was asked by my teacher to write down the ages of my grandparents. And I wrote down the ages of my grandmothers. Um, By that point, both of my grandfathers had passed away. And uh, my teacher looked at my paper and said, no, you're wrong. That's your great grandmother. (laughs) And I was like, you don't know. You don't know what you're talking about. That is my grandmother. And she's awesome. Um, But she had some books that she had read when she was a little kid. The... um, the Little Colonel series, which I think I only read the first one. Um, you know, plenty of problematic things in that. But I, I can um, guess from the title. That... <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I think, you know, that was maybe my earliest, like, oh, this is this is an older thing and it's cool because it's related to my grandma. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but then for real, like an actual interest in history, I I was lucky I had a lot of really good history teachers. Um, and I've, I've talked with you a lot and I probably talked on the podcast before. Um, and we'll talk with many people about like the type of history that is learn dates and get, you know, memorize dates, memorize presidents, memorize battles. Like I'm worthless at that. I, it goes in one ear out the other. I can't retain it, um, without some context, but fairly early on, I want to say maybe seventh grade, I had a really good history teacher that kind of taught a little bit more from that contextual side. Mm. And then um, certainly by high school, I lucked out and had some very good history teachers. And by that point was, you know, kind of that, oh, what do I want to do with my life kind of thing. Um, I was involved in History Day competitions and um, had that like, oh, history is really interesting when it's taught in an interesting way. Maybe I want to be a history teacher. Okay. Okay. Let's put a pin in that. Yep. Because you you fast forwarded through your life, and I oh, want to ask you a little bit more <laughs> <laughs> about your grandma. Um, oh yeah. Because I know this stuff. You seem like you have always been really cognizant of not just that. Well, she had some books from that era of her life, but that your family history is impacted by you have a different generational shift, right? Yeah. Because you're you're. Grandma is basically a flapper, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that she would call herself a flapper, but she was of that era. She was of that era. Yeah. She okay. got married in 1926, I believe. And on their honeymoon, they took the train to Niagara Falls on their way to moving to New York City. <laughs> right. And for a, a lot of people whose grandparents, uh, you know, if, sort of Gen X like me, your grandparents were solidly, uh, you know, greatest generation in World War II. Um, so to be, to have somebody a little bit even older than that is mm-hmm. your grandparent, I, I would imagine gives you a different perspective of history. Cause for me, like 1920s is, was, I, that's just sort of like oldie time history and, and to have to interact, get to interact with a person who has, that was their reality. I'm sure had a big impact, but you said in particular that when she gave you books that mm-hmm. they were cool because they were from her. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, sadly for not for everyone is something just automatically cool because it's associated to your grandparents. <laughs> what what was cool about your grandma? I think honestly, I, I mean, I, I loved both of my grandmothers, um, but she and I just had kind of a, a bond uh, when I was like nine or 10. I would sometimes go. She lived in Minneapolis. And um, my family at that point lived um, 
in other places. And (laughs) (laughs) I know you're trying to keep it simple, but it makes it sound like you're in witness protection. (laughs) You know, uh, we still went to my grandma's house. Um, But there were a few times where I would go, like I by myself would go stay with her um, as opposed to with my whole family. Not, I think like twice, but um, I don't know. I think we just, we early on shared a connection and it was something that she wanted to share with me. And I thought that that was special. Yeah. And, um, did she talk to you about history? Did she talk to you about like what it was like back in her day kind of thing? Or was it more just her spirit? Um, both, both. She did. I mean, so she was, um, I don't know if she was born there, but she grew up in a tiny, tiny, tiny little town in southwestern Minnesota. Um, and her dad ran a general store and then the family lived above the general store. Wow. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. And she went to a one room schoolhouse. Wow. And then, um, but it's kind of amazing because she had um, three sisters, one of whom passed away and one brother, and all of them went to university. So when she went to, when it was time for her to go to university, her family moved from this small town and moved to Minneapolis. Okay. Um, And she was, you know, in the 1920s going to university, which always had a huge influence on me of like because I was like as I I mean maybe not when I was really little but as I got older I was like oh that's really unusual that that was just expected that all of these girls from this small town would go to university yeah they all did yeah okay that's really cool yeah excellent uh I just wanted to get a slightly uh, better picture of what the relationship was and, and how it impacted you so moving forward you went to got uh, some some good schooling on history of not just being numbers, but, you know, ideas and context and the relationships of different things in the past and mm-hmm. all that. Uh, and you became a little bit more interested in it as a, something that you could do. Um, at that point, uh, did you start to have a definition of what history meant to you? Because I totally get where you're coming from, where it is, uh, there can be a real push-pull, I think, I won't speak to modern education, uh, but when I was going to junior high, high school, uh, I had like those battles between history teachers where like one quarter or one semester, I would have like a hard nosed, we don't teach revisionist history here, the numbers memorize them and shut up. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have teachers who are like, you are going to write an essay about the, you know, political, social and financial reasons that this specific you know, war or crisis happened, uh, who would really approach it as we are learning history because it is the uh, record of why society made the choices that they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you, what what definition, just as an example, that's the way I'm thinking. Yeah. What what emerged for you when you started to think about it more as a as a career, as mm-hmm. a definition of history that you liked? Um, I mean, for myself, I certainly enjoyed and I had even enjoyed I certainly connected to it when it was connected to a bigger picture. Um, And and I think I certainly had some different teachers who are like, everybody's trying to teach history from modern day perspective or from this, like this version of revisionist or now this version or like our books are 30 years old and are, you know, so they have this. We don't say that anymore. We don't you know, these dates are wrong or whatever. (laughs) Um. So I certainly liked that aspect of it. And this is kind of a a weird um, 
connection for it, but I think it's part of what solidified it that I honestly hadn't really thought about until right now. But I, in high school, also took um, French class. And as we were getting further into French, our French teacher would teach, we would learn French history in French. Mm. And so, you know, it wasn't like deep, uh, like themes and philosophies but like there are a lot of kings and queens of france that i know because that's how i was learning you know like how to conjugate verbs in like third level french or something like that and so but that connection learned the word defenestrated in in french (laughs) right (laughs) yeah and like i or we'd learn about the chateaus and i'd be like oh and this one has you know use this symbol all over chenonceau because it was you know this queen or this you know uh mistress or whoever like I don't. Rem- I didn't retain all of it, but it was it was a different way to approach it, and I think that probably had a a much bigger impact on me long term than I realized at the time. Okay. Um, I think that I mean at the time in high school, a lot of it was like, well, what what grade would I want to teach? I don't want to teach this grade. Uh, like, I don't want to teach high school. I guess I'll be a professor. Like, having never gone to college, so I, that was a little bit more where I was at. Yeah. Um, and also I was a big reader of historical novels. And so learning some of the history that then I could apply to these like Regency England novels that I was reading, like it was kind of, it was fun to put the puzzle pieces together. Oh, yeah, yeah. That brought up a memory I haven't thought about in a long time of getting excited uh, when I think in like later grade school, we were going to start covering uh, sort of medieval history. And I realized that, oh, damn, nights are real. (laughs) (laughs) And that connection from the fantastic to reality, you know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of kids experience that with dinosaurs, mm. right? Oh, the, yeah. The connection between the fantastic and reality. Yeah. And those beautiful moments when history can provide that. And then you start to realize like, oh, stuff that I maybe thought wasn't that interesting in history actually is because you had this doorway from the fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I also had a teacher fairly early on in high school who... Uh, was very big about making sure that when we were reading, especially like history textbooks, that we thought about the perspective of who was writing it and why they were writing it, mm. um, which I feel like is something that a lot of people don't get until later. And I'm very grateful for that because I think that helps me also see history as a construct of people. Yeah. Like it's a story being told by people as opposed to, you know, two plus two equals four. Right. Yeah, uh, th- this is the exact year that this happened. Here, mm-hmm. memorize a, a rhyme about a really awful guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the year 1492. Uh, yeah, and that changes it from here is a litany of facts to here is a living, breathing thing and a thing that can be manipulated, mm-hmm. either intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, uh, and, and it sounds like you had that experience right away in high school with people going, this history, not so much anymore. Mm-hmm. Or this history with a giant grain of salt, and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. So you got to college, and at some point you decided, or university, uh, <laughs> and at some point you decided not to go full history, but only partially history, right? Well, I was, I stayed a history major. Okay. Um, but I decided not to go full, like, yes, I want to be a professor at. Yeah. So, but your your history and dance, uh, which was major, which was minor? Double major. Double major. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm. It, history, and then when I was there, they didn't have a dance major, so I did a create your own na- major. Okay. Um, and 
now they do have a dance major. So, da da. Nice, nice. Well, I helped. What, what you, <laughs> you made history. <laughs> I did. Uh, what did you call the dance major if it didn't? If you had to make it up, um, was it like in narrative movement or what did you call it? Oh no, there was a program where you could because there was a dance minor. Okay. And so there was a program within like the dance and theater department where I where you could create your own major and you had to show like which classes you were taking and how it would equivalent a major okay yeah add Um, up to add up to there we go (laughs) um so so it still got to be called dance Dance. as far as like those documents dance but now it's major yeah Yeah. and there were um myself and another person my year both did that okay and so we followed the same plan so what what were those decision points obviously you i know it's because you love dance and you loved history um, but was there a point where like you started college strong in history and and then you wanted to make dance just as big of a focus or kind of what, what was the journey with history in those decision making mm. process? I mean, in some ways, the history, the decision not to follow history, like not to be like, OK, step n- next up of the plan, go get a master's, go get a doctorate, go try to be a teacher in history Um was actually a very specific step that I honestly don't remember if we've ever talked about, just like you and I as humans. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing we do a so, podcast. right, here we go. Um, and it's, a you know, when you're 20, 21, you make giant discoveries that you're like, oh my gosh, nobody else knows this. And if, then you're like, oh, yeah, pretty much everybody knew that. But uh, <laughs> to me, it was a giant discovery at the time. Um, I was in... Edinburgh, studying abroad at the University of Edinburgh, studying history. A, a town that has some history town, to it that yeah. you can really <laughs> see and breathe and Yeah, and live that amongst. was fantastic. Yeah. Um, also dancing while I was there uh, <laughs> because I couldn't, couldn't just do one. Um, but I just had kind of that moment of if I really want to go down this route, um, at least kind of the, the way that I saw it from my perspective at that time period, I need to choose like a very specific thing I want to focus on and then choose a very, very, very specific thing that I want to say that I know the most about, which which is not entirely accurate, but that was my 20-year-old point of view. And I decided I didn't want to do that. So I was like, "Hmm, nope, not for me. So the need to specialize on history made you go, eh. Not the need to specialize, but the need to specialize that what I felt like was that minutely to be like, not just say, oh, I'm going to study. Uh, this wasn't even like I'd gotten this far, but like not even saying I'm going to study, you know, medieval English history. Right. But I'm going to study this specific person and these 10 years of their lives. And that's going to be my thesis. And that's all I'm going to think about for X number of years. Yes. Excuse me. Like textiles from 1701 to 1718. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, now I'm like, Okay, Sarah, there could have been so many ways to make that fascinating. You could have made this work. But I think I also, by that point, knew enough people who were older than me and were going that route and were not so sure about it, you know, and the job market for his professors is not great and has probably gotten worse since then. So um, so there is some of that also of like, you know, the the glory of when you're 15 and being like, oh, I'm just going to go like be a smart person at a college. That'll be fun. <laughs> and then when you look at all of the work and grind and that in the end, you might not get there anyway. And and I had wasn't sure that that was just the route for me. Yeah. Well, that'll, that'll make some perfect sense. Um, I am going to throw something out at you. And yeah. you can absolutely tell me if uh, the even the concept of the question is flawed and, and hooey. 
I'm interested in how active in a live history feels at different parts of our lives. Like how often it feels like these are stories in, you know, books or on the internet that we can become experts in versus it feels alive. Do you think doing dance, something that is very visceral, very in the moment, made you feel differently about history? Did history hmm. feel active and alive? Because I'm wondering if literally physically throwing your body through space <laughs> made history, especially drilling down to tiny details, feel more sort of calm and stayed and locked in the past. Interesting. I've never thought about that. Um, I don't think so. Okay. But maybe. Um, I and it's fine to just say that's a flawed premise. I mean, I think it's a premise that works for some people, but I don't think that uh, I don't think that it applies to me. Okay, so history never felt dull to you. It was much more that concern of uh, you don't want you didn't want to micro focus. Yeah, for, for specifically the like, this is not the path I want to follow for my career. That was a hundred percent about the micro focusing. Um, I did when I was younger for a brief time consider like, okay. I see those people in movies and things who do historical dances and need to know all of the details of all the historical dances. How do I be one of those people? Oh, yeah. And then, okay, maybe I just don't like like micro details or at least didn't at that point because I was like, but I like dancing that's expressive and sometimes you do this and sometimes you do that and I don't want my pinky to be out of place and then I'm wrong. Yeah. Like there's a time and a place for that, but I, I also, when I was, I don't know, 13, stepped away from that one okay um yeah <laughs> i think what i'm learning from my wife is you don't like being pinned down <laughs> Hello. i feel i i mean i already knew that about you uh, so i feel extra honored that you married me <laughs> uh, but you can you can do whatever you want with your pinky in our marriage <laughs> and it's just fine i'm gonna leave that uh and not pursue that anymore so uh you you had this continued love of history mm -hmm. um, and you went out in the world and you ended up finding jobs that really involved history. Um, you worked at uh, James J. Hill House in St. Paul for a long time, which is a historic house, mm -hmm. a part of the Minnesota Historical Society. Mm -hmm. um, you work at Greystone Mansion here in Los Angeles now, uh, Mansion and Gardens, which it, there's an element of historic preservation and renovation there. Um, but when I met you, uh, I was also working for the Minnesota Historical Society, so I really considered you a, a super history person and a history buddy. <laughs> uh, so, how do you how do you feel? What do you feel you've learned by have about history by having it a part of your career? Yeah, um, I mean, it's been a real push pull for me over the years uh, because when I was first working for the Minnesota Historical Society at the Hill House, I was also doing arts administration and was very much one foot in history world, one foot in performing arts world, um, which is how I had spent my entire life and didn't know how to not do that. Um, but also was kind of constantly feeling that push-pull between the two worlds and wasn't sure where I would end up or if I would be happy about where I ended up. Um, so it, it has been a, a real push-pull but what I found, um, especially since working at Greystone, is kind of finding that balance and finding what the what the history of the place means to me and also the other things that, I mean, it's a park, so there's also that um, I've discovered a new love of 
the history of landscapes mm. and gardens, uh, which I had not really thought a lot about before. Um, and I, I really, really enjoy that. So I think part of it for me, honestly, is is finding those ways to let it flow and change and admit that it's a, a through line. But just like we were saying at the beginning, it's not a static condition. It isn't like, okay, you know, I got this, you know, degree. And now from now on, this is what I will be doing. Yeah. Um, you know, and nothing wrong with that, but that isn't my approach or reaction to it. Yeah. I've kind of gone off topic from what you asked me. No, no, you answered you had asked, uh, answered an aspect of what I was asking you about your personal relationship mm-hmm. with history, which is which is great that you, you just like in the moment that we're living in, uh, you are interested in being flowing and responsive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you're an emotional dancer as well as a physical dancer, <laughs> uh, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah, yeah, and just finding, um, you know, always having that grounding, um, and I guess maybe this is where the the dance metaphor does work because. You want your feet on the ground. You want that grounding. You want to know like what the connection is, but also in the moment, are you, you know, swaying with your torso or swaying with your arms and what's coming towards you versus what do you need to respond to and hold up and there, we'll make it a dance metaphor. (laughs) See, both worlds, one foot in each world. (laughs) One foot in each world. Yes. But I think it does speak to really viewing history as a fluid thing. Both mm. that that's the reality of how time moves when when things happen. They were mm-hmm. flowing in in the moment, right? right? And how we interpret them and respond to them is mm-hmm. a flowing thing as well. Yeah. Um. So with James J. Hillhouse, if we can talk about that a little bit, um, you were you had many different jobs there, including a uh, tour guide, and I forget your your uh, official title. Vice, you were vice president of the Hill House for a while, right? You were second in command. <laughs> that, yes, that was my title. <laughs> <laughs> you were the deputy. <laughs> what was your actual title? Uh, I believe it was program supervisor. It was one of those that they had changed it around. It was assistant manager, assistant site manager. But then I can't remember if it was right before I got the job or right after the job. They renamed every single position. Yeah. But, uh, some people were program managers who did the same thing I did. So anyway. Yeah, I think I worked for Minnesota Historical Society on and off in different capacities for about five years. And they restructured 27 times from my perspective. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway. But basically, yes, I was the the second in command for uh, for the James J. Hill ship. <laughs> the James J. Hill ship. The train. Choo-choo. <laughs> Um, so I want to, I want to talk about two different aspects of this. Yeah. Uh, we, we will put aesthetics on the shelf and we'll get back to that. The aesthetics of history. Okay. You, by ending up at the James J. Hill house, got to be immersed in history mm-hmm. is a part of your job, which a lot of people who have, I remember we, we talked about this when we were first dating. I thought it was so cool that you had a history degree and you were into history because it can be hard to find a job. Mm-hmm. That is about history outside of being a teacher. Yeah. But you also ended up doing what you had sort of resisted in your degree, which by working in history at the James J. Hill House, mean you micro focused on the era of history <laughs> that he and the house impacted. Uh, and I sure did. <laughs> I can tell you a lot about the Great Northern Railway. Yeah. Well, why don't you give us like the paragraph <laughs> version? Let's revisit your tour guide yeah, uh, let's days. See if I and what, can remember. What are the very basics of James J. Hill? 
Yes. So James J. Hill, also known as the Empire Builder, uh, built the Great Northern Railway is what he's best known for. The James J. Hill House is a National Historic Landmark based on Hill's contribution to transportation and economic history. So it's actually not on the register because it is also a beautiful house, but because of his uh, contribution. So, um, And the Great Northern Railway, for people who are not familiar, um, is when you take the Amtrak line, it's called the Empire Builder, named after James J. Hill. It's the northernmost of the partial transcontinental lines that um, extends from Chicago out to Seattle, also has a wing that goes down to um, to Portland, Oregon. And uh, in addition to that, he was very involved with uh, many other things with transportation. He was very involved with farming. Um, and <laughs> before he died, wanting to wanted to reform the banking industry, but died before he could do that. Um, and also was a big art collector. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and he also built the Stone Arch Bridge in Minneapolis, which is a yes, beautiful old uh, stone bridge that was originally uh, built uh, as a railway mm-hmm. uh, bridge and is now a, an amazing, beautiful uh, pedestrian bridge uh, that overlooks the St. Anthony Falls. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, it was called Hill's Folly because everybody <laughs> thought, why build a nice bridge when you could just make a quick one for money? Well, didn't they think it wasn't going to work? I think so. I think, I think so. But yeah, I, think I there's mean, there's a whole story there. But that's not part of the quick paragraph that you asked it for. It isn't. It yeah. isn't. That was uh, that was uh, a part of the place I worked at, Mill City Museum, which overlooked the Stone Arch Bridge. So that that was my part of the obsession. Um, so you got to really obsess on that. You you learned a lot about the finances of the time, right? And whether or not he was a robber baron, because right, that conversation comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, and, like, <laughs> there was a fire in your eyes. Did you want? Did you want me to say? I, I said it was a controversy. Um, I, I, I mean, was not calling him that. Oh, well, I mean, so, yeah, more or less. Um, <laughs> not the worst of them, not the best of them. Robert Barron is a term that came out later. Uh, but he's very much of the Gilded Age and very, very much at the top. Um, yeah. There is zero question about that. Yeah. And when you say the Gilded Age, what exactly does that mean? It's the Gilded Age. <laughs> is uh, late 1800s. I don't remember the exact dates. We'll say like 1880 to 1900. I'm I'm sorry to people out there who are like, Sarah, learn your facts. But remember, I started by saying, I don't remember all the dates. Um, I I don't remember if the term was coined by or just gained prominence by um, from Mark Twain, okay. who wrote a book about it. Um, but it was a time that was, we would say now, characterized by Robber barons, um, a lot of like these big, um, a lot of railroad, a lot of banking, a lot of oil. Big industry, big being built industry up. people getting um, amassing a lot of the money, and then all the people working for them not having any control and, and not having a lot of money. Yeah. So it was a time of great um, wealth disparity. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, being immersed in this history, mm-hmm. as well as the house itself. Mm-hmm. What what affected you? How did did you what did you end up seeing differently about the modern world or history or even your own life being immersed in the specific history of this man in the Gilded Age? Well, my father for a very very long time wanted me to find some way to be interested in economics. <laughs> uh, bless him. I I should have listened to him, but. Um, the thing that worked was me working at the James J. Hill House and having to learn all of these things about um, turn of the century, um, 19th into 20th, 
uh, economics and all of the economics that affected the building of the railroad and all of these other things in the early 1900s. And I found it fascinating. And so as a result, I had to learn a lot about economics, very big picture economics, not yeah. like minutia. Um, I, I won't claim that I have that knowledge. But um, so that's a, a big change of a thing that I got interested in because of that. Also, railroads. Um, one of my uncles is a big model railroad buff and was not railroads had never been a thing that were an interest of mine really yeah and uh then i became very interested in railroads and transportation and uh it honestly really broadened my horizons about a bunch of different topics to be interested in in modern life as well as in historical life and was it because you had to understand the human perspective because it was like this guy who literally sat here and made phone calls did this you know, I mean, we had so so I, I started at the Hill House as a tour guide and it was expected that we would, you know, we had to know a lot of information to give tours. Um, we gave tours of the house, but people expected you to know a fair amount about the family, about Hill's career. They did watch a 10 minute video during the tour. The tour was an hour and 15 minutes uh, to go through um, for the four floors, not the attic of this house. Um and there was also very much um, a culture there led by our site manager, Craig Johnson, um, but also very much imbued by all of the other tour guides. You know, you'd be sitting at the front desk between tours and you were expected to study and you were expected to learn and on and off throughout the years, depending on what else was happening and depending on, you know, if there are budget cuts. So we were all on tour all the time and then not allowed to do other things. There is this ex- expectation that we would... Um, that we would choose specific topics and do research on them. (laughs) (laughs) You can't escape putting the pinky in the specific place. You can't. You can't. And that's what I've learned since I was 20. Um, I've learned a lot of things since I was 20. But that's one of the things is that sometimes it's great to like deep dive on something because what it actually does is opens your eyes in a broader way, in a way you wouldn't have expected. Yeah, to other other ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Because every because I think that is one of the big lessons of history that I think sometimes isn't clear by the way we teach it or talk about it is everything is connected, right? Mm-hmm. So even though you wanted just for the sake of studying, you want to just be like, okay, well, here's what happened in you know England. Now I keep using England as an example because of the, the horrible bias um, in this year. Well, did, then you still you you have to know what's going on in France probably, right? For it to make any sense. Right. Or and, you don't, but you would f- learn a lot more if you did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. That makes a lot of sense. So what did you decide to specialize in when 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 you were asked to really focus down? Did you feel like you, you picked something to focus on in, in the world of Hill House? Well, I mean, we were, it was supposed to be kind of project by project. So okay. like maybe this year these aren't mine, but like somebody would focus on, oh, we got a donation from a family member of their China. So they're going to really look into the China or right. Um, for myself, I'm not going to remember all of them, but one that I did fairly early on and I'm not going to remember the name of it, but there was the, it was an anniversary in St. Paul. So the James J. Hill house should mention in St. Paul, Minnesota and um, overlooks the river, which is where he'll got his start was working on the river. And there was um maybe the sesquicentennial of like the great river something. And so I offered to do all of this research specifically diving into um, 
kind of these early steamboat days so that we could, I mean, for that one, I think we needed to make up like panels that we would have on display and do like a themed weekend. Okay. Um, One of the ones that I did end up doing research on later uh, was I also am uh, a knitter and crocheter and Mrs. Hill uh, was very into knitting and crocheting. And so I did a lot of research on kind of one, some of the different things that she might have been working on. Right. You got her anger quilt, right? Because you found that entry in her diary <laughs> where she was upset and, and took it out on her, what was it, crocheting? Y- yes. That one I honestly don't remember. She had two um, like bedspreads, one that she had knit, one that she had cro- crocheted, both with tiny needles and like cotton thread and their full-size bed like bedspreads. And um, I didn't get it. One of the descendants of the family very kindly (laughs) donated it back, but happened to mention um, that she remembered this quilt because it was what her, uh, I think the person it was, uh, she remembered her mom, who was a granddaughter, would say, um, oh, you know, she always worked on it when she was angry. So it had this kind of family history as like Mary Hill's angry quilt. And then because we have her diaries from like 30 plus years, we're like, oh, we know exactly when she's working on. She made it in like 11 months, which it's insane looking at the detail of this, of how fast she must have been and how angry she must have been. (laughs) That is some beautiful history. (laughs) Let's talk about uh, aesthetic, uh, because obviously you valued the house itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the mansion you work for now, uh, Greystone. Um, you, I know you work for the city of Beverly Hills, but at Greystone, and that is beautiful. You and I go places that are historic because of the valley of them. We both like old things. I, you know, I like old typewriters, and I, I think I mentioned recently on our first date, uh, it had just been your birthday, and I bought you a card of an oldie time telephone because I knew you liked old looking things. <laughs> What to you is the aesthetic power of old things? Mm. That is such a good question, and I so don't have a concise answer for that. You don't have to. Um, There's so many things that are powerful about it. Um, I mean, the Hill House, for another thing, honestly, that kind of kicked off my a very strong interest now in architecture, hmm. uh, having to learn about that. And then we did walking tours of the neighborhood talking about the architecture for those trying to picture the Hill House who have not looked it up yet. has great photos online, but it's in the Richardsonian Romanesque style, which means uh, there's a lot of Richardsonian Romanesque in Chicago, named after Henry Hudson Richardson, uh, who is an architect based in Chicago. And uh, but he did not design the Hill House, but it's um, red sandstone. You know, it's this weird combination. Most of the Hill House is kind of a little bit more the the force aspect of, you know, it, it's tall but feels a little squat. But a lot of those buildings have almost a playful aspect to them as well. Okay. And um, I just, I like how how you can find so much difference in different historical um, aesthetics, whether it's something like that, something like, a Frank Lloyd Wright, where you've got the compression of an entry, and then you see the beautiful windows that show you the landscape beyond. So you have, feel that innate release that you don't even realize you're feeling. Yeah. Um, to you know, thing like um, industrial history as well. I I also like I like 
so many things historical. <laughs> that is going to cause clearly so on this sorry. episode of Obsessed. Yeah, yeah sorry. I, no, I, I don't have a good answer for it, um, but I'll come up with one once we're done. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't ha- you don't have to. This is it's not you know an essay or a test. It's uh, appearing into our souls. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, it, yeah. and this is not just like look at me. It's, this is something I've thought about a lot. I think there is sometimes it is really purely aesthetic, like just um, I, I I don't want to lean totally into stereotype, but I do think some things in our more recent, like last 100, 150 year past are, you know, made more elaborately. You know, it was an earlier time where it where um, it, it was productive for a company to make something nice before mm-hmm. the model of make something fast and cheap and sell as many as possible came along. Right. So every once in a while, like a typewriter is just sort of like beautiful, just like the way the keys are articulated in the swoop of the uh, metal supporting each key and the way it's exposed and you can see all those rhythms. And like sometimes there's just like a literal physical beauty because I think it was a different time and a different, you know, mm-hmm. idea. And I think certainly with architecture, you'll see that, see that because it's like, well, this is art. It was a style. There were general right. rules of the style, but then there, uh, then the people involved personality, like so. There's that mm-hmm. kind of aesthetic beauty, but then I also just think for myself, just um, I like the powerful reminder of being connected to the past. Like there's a a romance to it and a reality to it that we did not randomly pop into the moment we're in. Like mm-hmm. we can be very obsessed about the moment that we are in. Yeah. Is individuals as a culture in things that just immediately are are totally familiar, but just immediately tell you, I am from a different time. There's this romance of it opens up the stories of, oh, that ring is aesthetically beautiful, but who owned it and what was its story? Or even something that isn't necessarily aesthetically beautiful. Like we went to uh, that museum showing about uh, basically artifacts from the 60s era Batman show. Mm-hmm. And the collection of toys, a lot of them just suddenly and carelessly mass produced to try to, you know, cash in on Batman hype. And they have a beauty to it because you can almost you can see how quickly and cheaply they were made with no thought. <laughs> and like that's not that doesn't even look like Batman. That's a yeah. weird you clearly had a different you had a Lone Ranger mask and then you put a bat symbol in the middle of it and the it, but they, are, but that tells a story of the time. And then you look mm-hmm. at something so cheaply and carelessly made and you know that it ended up in a museum because some kid had it and loved the hell out of it because it represented the ideas yeah. of Batman, of whatever it meant to that kid. So uh, to me, that's, that's, I think, a big reason why I like any object from the past because mm-hmm. of sometimes the actual aesthetic beauty but also just like all of the stories and and romance that are imbued in this object. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, for me, it's such an interesting push-pull because there's the idea of form and function that definitely is part of it. Um, You know, for example, like the TV cabinets back when you had a TV and it was a centerpiece of your room and they were often like beautiful with, you know, beautiful woodwork on them. Uh, So that, that combination of form and function has always intrigued me. I also do kind of like the some when you kind of see behind the scenes, like when you're talking about the typewriter, where you it something looks beautiful, but you can also kind of see how it works. Yeah. But then then not just kind of the pure aesthetic 
part of things that are beautiful. It's almost, And then things that, like you're saying, have the story, like there are, are cultural heirlooms as opposed to like, you know, we have our own individual heirlooms, but um, things that are bigger. And at the same time, when I think about going to museums and being like, oh, well, here's this shard of pottery and I should be really overwhelmed right now. And sometimes I'm really not. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's I find it very interesting which things speak to people and different people and what the experience is. Yeah, like we went to that King Tut exhibit, mm-hmm. which was amazing on so many levels. It was really well constructed. So, you, so there was so much history and so much information and so much context. And yeah. We learned so much about the culture and stripping away kind of the, you know, pop culture bullshit about King Tut. And there's definitely some like, oh, that's an amazing piece of art or that's has amazing, you know, cultural significance to that era. But the one that just blew my mind was the uh, little board game. Right. <laughs> and just that connection that history makes sometimes of like, I think that's where I'm sometimes most profoundly affected by history. Uh, and maybe this isn't great of like how much hasn't changed yeah. across time yeah. is the stuff that sometimes blows me away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That one for me, a lot of it was the jewelry because it was beautiful. And I was like, I would totally wear any of these pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Um, have, have you picked, you've talked a lot about interests that you've developed mm-hmm. and we, in, as a culture talk so much about life lessons from history. Mm-hmm. Have you taken on any personal life lessons from, uh, Hill House history or any history you've studied or museums or old cocktail bars we've visited or anything? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the biggest ones that I've taken away is one that I mentioned early on that I is to to look at if you're if you're reading history look at who's telling the history and if there might be a reason and not that everything always like you're saying like I think if sometimes if there's if I mean there usually is bias but I think a lot of times it's unintentional but sometimes it's very intentional oh yes and so that is certainly a life lessons that that I learned fairly early on to consider your sources <laughs> Yeah. And I feel like that is such a important life lesson to have um, that I'm just going to leave it at that one. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, it, it is a very clear debate about history. Like, literally, somebody wrote this book, like, and they'll have sources, and you can run those sources down, but also you, you can communicate a lot by the word choice, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. history books, obviously, there's they, they can be outright lies. Or they can be very using, you know, uh, language to imply something. Yeah. Uh, and, and I try to carry that through to like tweets. <laughs> uh, and honestly, like, I and mean, this is dumb, but like I carry it through to watching narratives. And if somebody says something on Star Wars or Doctor Who, and then I see like fans being like, well, that's canon now. Like, no, that's what that character thinks is true. And like there's even a difference in in narratives, the way we present, the way like the story is told, the way literally the camera or the script will work to, sh- to try to show us the audience like we're showing you a thing that happened. But then sometimes a character says some crap mm-hmm. and that's totally up for grabs. Right. Based on why that character is saying that at that time, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's a great lesson from history. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just it's really important. Um to think about and it's and it's not only just the language but it's the 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 omission yeah yeah obviously um, that's 
I learned I've, over the years, I've taken a lot of history classes for non-European countries, uh, which I did not get a lot of until I chose to do that. And um, so even that omission of, you know, it took a long time for me to get to the history of Central America. Yeah, no, and that's a discussion that's going on right this second um, mm -hmm. with the uh, horrible uh, white mob murdering people in Tulsa mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of people, I think, have been expressing on social media. Like, I, w I feel bad that I didn't know about this, but I was not taught. That was omitted. Yeah. Uh, and, and the hu huge, much larger cultural awareness of it because it was featured prominently in the Watchmen television show. Mm -hmm. And like, that's just a, a fascinating interplay of history that mm -hmm. the, the choice to include history in something fictional it can, you know, fill in this gap that was, that feels like it was a choice to make it a gap in, mm -hmm. in people's knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. In and some people's knowledge. Again, I'm sure there's many people who are very well, I'm talking big cultural. Yeah. Picture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, for myself, I, I mentioned working at the Historical Society. Uh, I worked uh, at the History Center in St. Paul for a little while. And then, uh, you know, for th uh, three or four years at uh, the Mill City Museum, which is a museum all about the founding of Minneapolis, how it was founded based on the power of St. Anthony Falls, being able to make uh, flour uh, the way that it could only be make, made for rich people. It could now be made for everybody. Uh, that way and you can make a lot of money and then within that 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 basically general mills and pillsbury grew out of the saint anthony falls uh, staring at each other uh, across the river and that is one of the flashpoints of how modern advertising started because they were producing the exact same product and they needed a way to build brand loyalty because <laughs> like they couldn't just say ours is better here's what's different because like we're getting the exact same wheat and we have the exact same technology and we're using the exact same waterfall. It's exactly the same. Mm -hmm. So we like, that was a fascinating thing. Yeah. There were so many things that I discovered there that reinforced my, Oh, just kind of a perspective of that. There's nothing that we over glamorize history with statues and heroes. Mm -hmm. um, not that there aren't heroes in history. But just when you you read like, oh, yeah, that person, their pride was hurt, so they did this thing. <laughs> that person made fun of them, so they wanted this. Mm -hmm. They wanted to make money, and this was the most readily available thing, and there was no thought of like, I shall invent a new world, you know? Right. How much of that, like that the, the main newspaper in the Twin Cities started as an advertisement to live there and was like filled with half-truths about how great the refreshing snow is for your health and like all yep. that stuff. And it, the, re the reason I brought up Hill's Folly is uh, that was every like cool innovation that actually did move technology forward that I mm -hmm. learned about at Mill City Museum was called someone's folly because someone's <laughs> like, hey, wait, I think it might work better this way or what if I made something really nice that would stand the test of time? <laughs> Just picture this mom of people going, idiot. We're going to name it This Idiot's Folly. That was really refreshing to yeah. me of just connecting to modern times of like, remember any time you're actually trying to do something kind of new or cool or revolutionary or, or with the future in mind, there's going to be a band of idiots calling it somebody's folly. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was very powerful. <laughs> 
Uh, and then the, the other thing I wanted to share real quick is uh, at the History Center in St. Paul, there was one room that had a rotating exhibit. And there was uh, a time that where the exhibit was, I think it was mostly a, a promotion of a book, but it was a bunch of photography from 1950s, 1940s, 1950s uh, newspapers mm-hmm. in the Twin Cities uh, really covering the crime beat. And it was one of those, I kind of, I intellectually understood, don't trust the narratives about the past necessarily. But I had grown up with a, a lot of what I think people of all generations end up growing up with, where where people perceive their childhood to be a simpler time. So they pass that on. Mm-hmm. And I had grown up with the, oh, well, you know, you know, back... Back in the 40s and 50s, you could leave your door open and you could, you know, uh, sleep out on the porch if it was hot and all neighbors worked together and like the kind of this rosy past. And and also like growing up very much with the like, we're not sure about these violent movies like the RoboCop, you know, and all that kind of stuff to see that not only was there plenty of horrific gun death and violence and car accidents but back in the allegedly glorious pure 1950s there were massive photos of horrific violence mm-hmm. used to sell newspapers in peaceful calm beautiful twin cities in the <laughs> 50s and it was just one of those it was one of those reminders that yes yes absolutely things go up and down and things get better or worse for different groups of people absolutely some of that romanticizing about the past is, I, I think, a, it, it ignores, it conveniently ignores the parts of history that say, yes, we've been struggling with violence and using uh, other people's misery to make money, you know, mm-hmm. and, and lots of human vices that we are still struggling with, we have been struggling with for a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. 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 No, that's such a great example. And, uh, I worked at the Hill House when that exhibit came out and that book came out and we sold it in our bookstore. I remember sitting there looking at it. Um, very graphic photos. It was very, it was, yeah. it was a weird shift because yeah. you, you, other areas that you worked is a tour guide where you, where people wanted to engage mm-hmm. or like, oh, there was an exhibit about music. So you'd hit your favorite song on the fake jukebox and <laughs> then the other like spend an hour wandering around the murder room <laughs> was yeah yeah that was a different experience um do you have any any uh thoughts based on my rambles um i mean i've uh no i'm good <laughs> <laughs> okay i just i realized that i had shared and i wanted to no hear. no it was fantastic and, it was really interesting and i think it's very interesting so okay i guess i do have thoughts because as you said, I was trying to not be super hyper specific, but then I ended up working at a person's house. And so knowing a lot about that person and his career and his family, as well as the time period, the neighborhood, um, it was an interesting neighborhood because uh, Scott Fitzgerald had lived near there. And, you know, so there's a lot of things to talk about. But thinking about that versus the two places you worked for, for the Minnesota Historical Society, one which is the Minnesota History Center, which covers a lot of Minnesota history. I mean, kind of anything could be included. And then Mill City Museum, which really did focus on not only the mills, but the history of Minneapolis. So it's just interesting thinking about those as such. Um, 
wide focus yeah uh locations and um as opposed to the <laughs> the narrow but wide focus we still found a wide focus <laughs> you did everything from the economics of the turn of the century to anger quilts to you anger got it. quilts to Scott Fitzgerald we've got it all <laughs> yeah yeah okay I want to run a theory by you yeah and and hear your thoughts because uh, it's something I think about a lot and I feel like it is bubbling up right now I think there is sometimes a risk of the way that we think about history of actually pacifying us we talk about about history as uh learning about ourselves and learning not to repeat the mistakes of history that is a thing our culture that we say to each other all the time (laughs) but i sometimes worry about history pacifying us because we look at it is etched in stone Mm. and even people who did truly honestly legitimately amazing things become sort of statues and easy pull quotes and memes and it starts to just feel like it's a story in a book that's the way it's always been you know mm-hmm. and it starts to i think disconnect you from the reality that the people that we admire from history who did amazing terrifying things in order to make a difference that they didn't feel or experience the world differently than we do. They were in mm. their moment of present. Mm-hmm. But I think by sometimes looking at it as etched in stone, it takes away, I think, some of the connection to they didn't. Um, I, I, I don't want to minimize anybody that they we're a hero of, but we have that same opportunity that they did. But right. it doesn't feel that way because it feels like. Well, we're we're just living our lives, and there's all these. I didn't gotta make a bunch of scary choices and sacrifices, and like, yeah, but that's what those people did. It wasn't yeah. etched in history. It wasn't like you don't you you know don't look at your <laughs> clock and go, oh, well, now now is when I'm going to protest because that's the way it plays out in a history book. Right. I got the piece of mail, and it told me that on this date I go do this. And now here I go. Now here I go because I'm a part of history, and I'm just sort of a part of the yeah. record, not a human who made a terrifying choice in the moment. Right. How do you, am I full of hooey? Oh, How no. do you feel about that? I absolutely agree. I think it's um, in that, I mean, I agree that the people in history were human. <laughs> that, <laughs> part least, is, that part of it is not uh, revolutionary. <laughs> the humans that we're talking about. Um, but that, do you mean specifically um, the feeling that because it's in the past, we kind of, we put it as other as opposed to making it something that could be part of our own experience as well. Yeah, I think there's yeah. an othering. I think it's almost the same way that we other celebrities. Yeah. Right? Because once they become a celebrity, um, like just take somebody that a lot of people admire, like David Bowie, right? We can look at him of like, well, of course he was going to become famous because he's David Bowie. Mm-hmm. And it is so hard to go back and put yourself to like, no, he, he was a human who made scary choices to achieve what he achieved and there was every possibility that nobody would ever realize that he was quote unquote david bowie right right Mm -hmm. um and i think it is i think that we sometimes give a sort of predestined magic to people who have truly made a difference Mm -hmm. and then sometimes we feel like how could i possibly be that person I don't have that predestined magic. Yeah. And we don't remember that they didn't either. Yeah. Honestly, that's one of those places where people, some of the, because 
people who, whether they've been omitted or just, I mean, history is huge. There is so much because, because everything is history. Some of it we spend more time on than others. But when you, for myself, when I've learned stories about people that I maybe didn't know about, what for whatever reason, you know, maybe we just didn't know about them. Um, maybe they're not a huge deal, but they were really interesting in this one perspective. Um, those are the stories that, to me, I find inspiring in that instance. Yeah, because it's not the it's not the figureheads that you see in a history book or a TV history or on a history podcast. It's not the people that you hear the people in your circle talking about. It's some of these other people who who do to our kind of modern looking at the grand version of history feel smaller. Mm-hmm. And therefore, to me, do feel a little bit more human. And you do, to me, see that like, yes, they are. They are the ones you can see them making choices where yeah. sometimes you can't you can see it with some of the other like kind of bigger figures. Um, but I, to me, that I find that inspiring. Uh, and it's also it's a good way for me to always remember like, OK. Tomorrow's history is what we do today. Yeah. And not that I remotely think about that every day and not, you know, but it is one of those. Easy to say things, but then when you actually try to think about it and sit with it for a little bit, you know, bring the dance medicine for back in, ground your feet and stick with it like really grounded in you. You know, tomorrow's history is made today. Does that affect people? Does that affect how they perceive the world or how they perceive themselves and what they can do within the world? Yeah, yeah. And I don't mean it is an is a like easy rah-rah, well, go make change. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think the, the people who manage to make change are the people who not only make the, the sacrifices or have the great ideas, uh, uh, but they, they persevere, right? And and it, it sometimes it is really hard to do that. You can say, I'm going to make change and, and find all this resistance, right? Yeah, sometimes uh, Or it totally is. accidentally make history, right? Exactly. Like sometimes it really is right time, right place. Somebody had a camera or wrote it down and saw it. Right. You know, it, it is it is to me really the interesting. That's one of the things that I do find fascinating about history is what we know and what we don't know and the reasons for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you and, mind? Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mm. say, and how we look at it in the future, because in the past, you know, it's diaries or newspapers, and then you start to get photographs. And now with everybody having so much access not everybody most people having so much access you know we all take thousands of photos on our phones you know the era of blogs and live journal and And social media right you know like so you've got all of this information and i i'm so curious uh sometime when you ask me on one of these where i want to time travel i want to time travel to the future to see how future (laughs) historians are dealing with uh kind of our general time period and how they're dealing with sifting through all of that information. Right. Because it's not like in other times where where you have like we found the four journals from this exact year that we want to do a you know, a theater piece about we found these four journals so we can combine them, which yeah. is the thing I literally did at the at the history center. I, I got to act in it. <laughs> Craig Johnson compiled them. But yeah, imagine somebody's like, I wanna do something that really looks at life in two thousand fourteen. Oh, God, there's so, <laughs> so many sources to choose from. Yeah. So yeah, maybe we are really contributing to history by in ways that we don't see by just being 
a loud, loud, unified, sometimes not unified voice. Yeah. And that maybe history will be more like, like, honestly, this is really dumb. But what jumps to my mind, the Internet voting the boat to be named Bodie McBoatface. Like that is to me like an important moment of history because it is what do you do when you give power to uh, the people <laughs> in, in this specific context where a culture that has become heavily invested in irony and maybe even kind of wants to put push back against making everything sort of overly pure and neat because mm-hmm. I think that's a part of what Bodie McBoatface was like. You really want to ask the internet? Okay, we'll show you that we're not going to n- name it. You know, the undisputed victor. It's going to be called <laughs> Bodie McBoatface. It's, yeah, it, it is. It can look be, seem just like childish sarcasm, but also I think is a historical moment. It's if you really let the people have a voice, you might get a, a different, a less sanitized version of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, would you uh, indulge one quick Star Wars ramble? Absolutely. A part of what has crystallized this idea for me, mm-hmm. I will say this very quickly, is the story of the sequel trilogy, where in the first chapter, Luke is literally a myth. Ray, Luke Skywalker's real. I thought he was a myth. He's mm-hmm. mythic. Uh, and then our heroes, uh, Ray and Finn, meet Han Solo. And like, you're the Han Solo. This is the Millennium Falcon. And all of our characters that we grew up with are people of history. And then our characters get to know them. You know, in Luke in Last Jedi is really wrestling with. That's exactly what I don't want. I don't want people to see me as a myth because I'm a person living and I make choices. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. But if you see me and you see the Jedi as just a myth then you're not going to see the truth of history and you won't be able to make better choices based on our mistakes. If you just mm-hmm. think the Jedi were the heroes, they fought the bad guys. Like, yes, that's true, but look at the full history. So then Ray wrestles with that in the middle chapter. And then by the time you get to the third chapter, you get this great scene with uh, Lando and Poe when uh, Leia has passed away and Poe is kneeling at her bedside and is literally saying, I don't know how to do what you did. You know, and I don't know if I'm ready. And Lando appears, this other figure of legend, and says, uh, "No one's ever ready." And Poe and Lando have this conversation about how did you do it? And La- and they, like, for the first time, really in this this arc of the the new generation learning that the myths aren't myths; they're people. You have a person to person conversation where Lando is basically like, "Yeah, the big fight we did in Return of the Jedi, we weren't legends." Mm-hmm. We were humans, and the only thing we had to rely on is one another. And Poe's like, oh, th- there's not some magic preordained thing. I'm a person in this moment with friends. I'll make a choice. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a great example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I obviously, uh, it, it's not, uh, all, all of history isn't about <laughs> uh, <laughs> defeating Sith, uh, but, but some I f- of it. But I do feel like... Um, in addition to history, some of these fictional worlds that have done a lot of world building, like Star Wars, there is a lot to be learned from looking at how they treat their history and their, I guess that's different from world building, world building, but how they treat their history within those worlds as well. Yeah. And I think, I, it's, I mean, I feel like that's a whole fascinating separate topic is 
history within fictional worlds. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so going back to the real world, thank you for my uh, indulgence. Um, ha- do you, Have you ever taken a specific action that you're aware of because you have learned from history, either even your own history or the history of the past where you're like, nah, I know that's a bad idea. I mean, I would or like I'm- to think I've taken a lot of actions because of something that I've learned. Yeah. But I'm, uh, let's see. I mean, honestly, this this is both historical and also kind of modern environmental, but that's part of the reason that in the pre-coronavirus times, I liked taking the bus. Uh, because of because, the history of mass transit? No, I mean, part because it's it's there, but also the history of the environmental movement and trying to do something and the feeling that we can all do our part. So I am trying to be, you know, yeah, uh, inspired historically and environmentally to do my part and sometimes take the bus. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That's a great example. <laughs> I can tell by the look on your face you don't think that's a great example, but I think it is. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and you are a fan of the history of transit, and Los Angeles has a complicated history with uh, transit, as many cities do. Um so uh, we're talking around the edges of a lot of what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, but as we are going through this time of wrestling with um, with racial injustice, mm-hmm. with the history of racial injustice, uh, and wrestling with the history of the police and their history of police brutality and how it's been handled, and uh, you know, uh, honestly, at this point, if if people choose to stop listening to obsess because they don't like this. I respect that and understand. But uh, the history of authoritarianism and how governments crumble when somebody like Trump, who wants us not to revere the office, but to revere the human and wants to strip away all of the safety guards from that happening. Mm -hmm. We are in all of these moments where we are either trying to wrestle with, we need the full history out there so we can really deal with what's happened or with Trump, honestly, like, we have many parallels for many people. We grew up learning about World War II and, and Nazi Germany. So these exact literal steps of stripping away accountability in government and othering people don't happen. So we are in times of great significant need of history mm-hmm. as a topic. Um, feel free to, to step as lightly or as fully on, on issues as you want. But for you, what moments of history are you concentrating on when you think about the challenges that we're facing right now? Oh, um, so to me, one of the things that's interesting, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of people are making the ties um, politically with uh, basically, you know, kind of 1930s Germany. Good connection to make. Um I don't know as much about it, but I've been have been interested in wanting to look more into uh, kind of pre-Mao leading into Mao China. Um, I think there's so many different, very interesting examples where people come in by force or come in by people just not noticing, being okay with it, thinking it's something else. Um, and I feel like it is really good to look at Germany, but I think it's also good to look at some of the other locations, which there's examples all over the world, all throughout history. Um, Because I think we 
we can learn from history, but history does not exactly repeat itself. So Mm -hmm. that is where (laughs) I'm just all about the metaphors and similes today. History is like your your vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) This is so great. And you don't want just one type of food, meaning like history of one area or one era, because eventually you're going to end up with a vitamin deficiency somewhere else when you don't, you know, like I feel like if you have a more well-rounded knowledge, uh, historical knowledge, I mean, knowledge also, but historical knowledge specifically, you will be better equipped to kind of take things in because your, your brain is getting all these nutrients, your body is getting all these nutrients. Um, so this is a new one. I'm, I'm kind of going with it on the floor to see if it works or not. It might all fall apart, but so You're far it's moment. working. That's great. You're um, making history. <laughs> but you get your history nutrients. You let them flow through your mind, flow through your body. And I feel like it does help you take in and process what's going on. And also maybe what some of the potential reactions are mm-hmm. rather than just seeing like, oh, well, this is the one example I know. So then A, B, and C are the only options. And I'm not saying anybody is saying that. But I feel like it is good to have a wider array of options. I think that's really, really uh, well said. And I think a really great point because there are those points in history that that emerge for obvious reasons. There's a reason we focus on World War II and and, and the Nazis build to power. Mm -hmm. But you're right. There's so many other examples that we can look at and go how... Uh, yes, there are similar. I've read lots of articles about you know the general pattern of authoritarianism, but it is helpful to look at w- what does what do different historians because they're all going to have different ideas consider the moment where this is where the people could have done something mm-hmm. to stop the the fall into authoritarianism and, yeah. and losing losing freedoms while still allegedly being told that you have it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that's really powerful. Um, yeah, and for myself, I'm just thinking, uh, I have many thoughts, but I will just share. Um, I think I, I'm wrestling with, a, along with my example of history, kind of can get to feel sort of um, predestined magic so we, we don't feel like we're in it. Uh, I think the same can almost be with, we, we have been taught for the most part and thought uh, about what happened in Nazi Germany so much and the Nazis I think were lampooned in Western culture for decades is a, is a way to take power away from them to make them look like what they were. Um, and I think there's a danger of that adding up to they, that feeling that it really can't happen here because they're, they're Nazis. Come on. I mean that's a whole different thing, and 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 I think there's a, a a need to strip that away, and just say, despite the thousands of movies and everything, they're humans, and they made choices, and those choices led to utter horror, mm-hmm. and and really reconnecting with stripping away the sort of um, the over the topness that has been attached to some figures of history and just go, no, back then they were humans that made choices and we have humans making choices now. And if they're Mm -hmm. making the same choices, then action must be taken. Mm -hmm. Well said. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah. So uh, that, I'll, I'll stop talking about that now. Uh, so I have a fun question for you. Yeah. Which to segue away from wrestling with uh, the very challenging times we're in. No, we need was, to keep doing that too. Yeah. Doing both like we talked about at the top of the podcast. Yeah. Uh, if you could have a cocktail with anyone from history, who would it be? Oh I told you, this is going to be a, that was emotional whiplash from what we were just talking about. This but. is such a good question. And why have I not constantly been thinking about this? Okay, here's a new challenge I'm going to give myself. I think that every day I should come up with a different person I want to have a cocktail with from history. Because <laughs> the list like is it. so long. And I feel like, why not? Like, that wouldn't that be a fun, just like, mental project to also force yourself to learn about Oh, yeah. Other people. To learn a new historical figure. Yeah. 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 Well, who would you start with? Wow. I mean, I want to pick somebody good. Well, do you want me to Ooh. share someone to buy you time? Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, this is the other thing that I greatly enjoyed at Mill City Museum is learning about the person that some history books called the father of Minneapolis, uh, but Franklin Steele. He was uh, basically kind of a, a rich a ne'er-do-well from the East Coast and, you know, really wanted to, everybody wanted somebody important, quote-unquote, to stake a claim in, uh, in of, of the power of St. Anthony Falls. And so he was, he did, he got the, the riparian rights, the, the water rights to uh, St. Anthony Falls, and he proceeded to build a lot of things. But he was, by all accounts, incredibly charming. And could talk people into stuff and just a disastrous planner and business person. (laughs) (laughs) And I got to play him in in a history monologue. And it was really fun because it was the monologue was an effort to kind of show that history. Yeah. Like he is talking about what he accomplished and then kind of has to. uh, That didn't really work out. And eventually people in Minneapolis kind of had enough of me. So I, I. I, I had to leave, but it's fine. Uh, and he, he was one of those people who truly made history come alive. He's like, I've known Franklin Steeles. <laughs> I've known people who are charming as hell, have a truly great idea, and extremely limited ability to execute it. Yeah. Well, uh, so I would love to sit down and have a cocktail with Franklin Steele. And that's just a great, <laughs> maybe not a great, uh, that's a very apt term for people too. Uh, I've known a lot of Franklin Steeles. <laughs> I really have known a lot of Franklin Steeles. I think I have sometimes been a Franklin Steele. Scrimshaw's well. Folly. That's what I, the podcast should be called. Uh, did I buy you enough time? I mean, I, I have too many now. Okay, well, how about top three? Okay. So, okay. Top three. I'm, I'm going to go big with the first one. Okay. Joan of Arc. Okay, that's big. Yeah. Because I don't actually know. I mean, like, we know what we know in history books, and who knows if how much of that is actually true. I right. don't know. I, I'm sure people do know. People have studied it extensively. But why not have somebody just, like, a really big figure in history that isn't super modern? Yeah. So that's my reason for Joan of Arc. Solid. Benjamin Franklin. Ooh. Um, one Might be wine. Benjamin Franklin, known, uh, you know, uh enjoyer uh, enthusiast of wine um you know sit down and watch sideways with him maybe and uh you know i suspect pretty entertaining yeah like i kind of feel like put a cocktail in him and see what he says um and then third hetty lamar oh damn that is great so there that you go that is great got the first three days 
that more to come beautiful answers well that's our big look at uh history we're gonna do some plugs and we'll have our final questions uh so sarah where can people find you and where do you want to be found (laughs) on social media um you can find me on instagram at scrim street and you can find me on twitter at sarah underscore scrimshaw Excellent. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram is at Joseph Scrimshaw. You can follow Obsessed Podcast on Twitter and Facebook is at Obsessed Podcast. You can also check out the Star Wars podcast I co-host that is called Force Center. For info on all my upcoming shows and comedy albums and stuff, you can check out my website at josephscrimshaw.com. You can also support Obsessed by backing us on Patreon. Full info on that, go to patreon.com slash josephscrimshaw. And if you are interested in uh, helping people with a lot of the big challenges that are going on right now in our world, I have found the website Black blacklivesmatter.com has a portal to many, many different uh, resources, many different people that you can help. So you can really uh, put your energy and, and money to who you want to help, how and when. And I, I think that's great. So blacklivesmatter.com. All right. Final questions. You ready? Ready. These are kind of history based. We're not doing the how obsessed are you questions uh, right now because I feel like you and I have asked them of one another quite a bit. <laughs> uh who knows? Maybe we'll see some more. But here you go. If you could put up a statue of anybody anywhere, who would you put up? <laughs> You're not asking the easy questions today. I am today. not. I'm sorry. You are not. Um, wow. Wow. I'm going to think of such good answers later. Because um, <laughs> see, part, here's... These don't have to be good answers. They just have to be honest answers. May I talk through my feelings about this? Please do. So here's the thing is a lot of... For one thing, I haven't been reading as many history books lately as I should have been or want to be. been reading a lot of gardening books. Very fun. A um, kind of history. Some of them are history. Um, but a lot of the people that my mind instantly goes to with this, I'd be like, well, so-and-so. And I'm like, mm, no, not who I – like, I want more, like, statues of people who will be longer-term worthy uh, than <laughs> some of the initial <laughs> people I'm thinking of. Uh, but here's a person who is all sorts of complicated and – knew it at the time so i feel like it's a good it's a good statue for people to have lots of complicated conversations victoria woodhull Ooh, yeah and and can you remind uh me and listeners she's the first woman to run for president is that correct yeah so she ran for president in the 1880s i believe okay she and her sister were also the first two women to be um i don't recall what the term is, licensed to uh, trade on Wall Street. Oh, wow. Um, their father was truly, honestly, a snake oil salesman. Like literally snake like, oil. Literally snake oil and, was, and other potions and taught them <laughs> the art of deceit, basically. That's how they made their lives when they were uh, they're living when they were kids, <sighs> helping him and then escaped. Um, and, you know, all sorts of other things that uh, she and her sister both did. But, uh, you know, it, I feel like let's have statues be starting points for conversations. So that is a great conversation. Start. Yeah. Victoria Woodhall. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's awesome. That's great. Uh, I'm not asking the home sets are you questions, but I still want to talk about bears. So <laughs> if a bear showed up at our apartment and the bear could speak. Yeah. And the bear asked to be told something about history. What would you tell the bear? I mean, you want to be really, offer a really good historical story for the bear. Yeah. I might want to start with a few probing questions just to get kind of get a sense of what the bear's interest is. That's very you kind. You know, is the bear interested in 
local history. Are we here in Southern California? So it wants to hear something about Southern California. Does it want to hear something about far off lands? Should I tell it a story about Scottish history? I mean, like, I think I would need to know a little bit more about what the bear's interest was. Okay. What if the bear said it wanted uh, Scottish history? What would you what would you tell it? Yeah, I think I would tell it some history about the actual city of Edinburgh because the history of the city of Edinburgh, in the little that I know, is fascinating. Um, you want the actual story, don't you? No, no, no. Oh, okay. It's just fine. It's just fine. Um, I'm just really enjoying the picture in my head of the bear hearing about Edinburgh. You know, we'd sit down. Uh, maybe I'd get out some honey. <laughs> um, and, you know, we'd each have a spoon and a little bowl of honey. And we'd talk about the uh, volcanic plugs from the no longer existent volcanoes and how everything started there and why there's so many different levels and protection and then why they decided to move beyond that and how that was safe and why. And maybe we get to talking about the Firth of Horth Forth and engineering history because it's an amazing bridge. I mean, there's the, a lot the to talk about. streets that have been built over, so they're now underground. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I think... Good choice, Bear. Okay. I was going to ask you what is happiness, but I'm going to answer for myself to close our, our <laughs> podcast that happiness is if <laughs> I went to the grocery store with my mask on, damn it, and I uh, came home and in our apartment, you were sitting down just scooping dia or uh, honey out of a bowl with a bear <laughs> talking about Edinburgh. That would be happiness. Good answer. Thank you very much. That is our podcast. You've been listening to Obsessed. Joseph Scrimshaw and his guest shared some stories with the rest. Rate five stars if you're impressed. Next person to have a cocktail with, Mary Hill, wife of James J. Hill. Not sure that she drank, uh, so maybe this would be a cup of tea. But we would get together and uh, we'd talk about that angry quilt. <laughs>